0: let us pray. (coughs) Father, again, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for your care and love for us that you have given it to us. Now we ask you to open our hearts and our ears that we may hear what you would have us to hear and do what you would have us to do. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Almost every class at St. John's College begins with an opening question. And these questions uh, have a sort of an outsized um, role on campus life. They have an, an honored, a revered place among the students. When it comes to social small talk among the students... Uh, We we wouldn't talk about the weather. We wouldn't talk about the score of of last night's ball game. We would talk about last night's opening questions. They were that important. When we talked to each other, we'd talk about the opening question from last night's seminar. The main purpose, of course, of these questions was to jumpstart conversation. We had two and a half, three hours worth of talking together. It's a good way to get things started. And hopefully, if the question was good, the conversation would flow for the next three hours. But any question worth its salt did more than just start conversation. It highlighted the tensions and struggles that the text dealt with. In fact, the tension and the struggles that made this text worth considering. Indeed, a great opening question immediately filled the room with tension, sometimes intense tension. Because it brought to the surface questions of life, not just a text. Of life, questions that we knew were important, but had long been buried or ignored because they were difficult or painful to ask, or perhaps because too much hinged on their answer. The questions opened not up just the text, but life and our place in it. And a good question was followed by periods of silence because we were intimidated by the question. If these questions asked by tutors at a quirky college could intimidate students, how much more questions asked by God ...for his questions certainly did more than generate conversation... ...or they were more than attempts to gather information. Adam, where are you? God asks in a post-fall garden. Surely he's doing more than trying to ascertain Adam's geographic location. He's asking the question that Adam desperately wants answered but is deathly afraid to ask. Now that I have sinned, where am I? Where am I in relation to God? Where am I in relation to Eve? Where am I in relation to creation? Where am I in relation to life? Where am I? After defeating the prophets of Baal and fleeing from Jezebel for his life, Elijah stands at the mouth of a cave on Mount Horeb and he hears God ask him, Elijah, what are you doing here? God is certainly doing more than trying to find out the purpose of Elijah's trip to Mount Horeb. He is asking the question that Elijah fears to ask. Is the work that I have devoted my life to Worth it? Have I wasted my life? I have taken risks. I have suffered deprivations. I have been hated. I'm being hunted down for the sake of the worship of God. And here I am the only one who loves God. Is any of this worth it? What am I doing here? In our Old Testament passage for today, Ezekiel 37, God asks another question. Perhaps the question. Israel is in captivity because of its sin. The exile and diaspora has separated the Jewish people from its home and from its worship in Jerusalem. This is a form of death. They saw the exile from Israel as a form of separation from God and his location at Jerusalem. It was a form of death. In fact, the exile is linked to the fall. It is another fall of God's people. And in exile, God takes Ezekiel in a vision. He gives him a vision and he sets him in a valley of dry bones. He says, he emphasizes the fact that they are very dry. It seems that it is the scene of a, possibly of a battle that had taken place many years ago. Later in the passage, we find out that these were the the bones of people who had been slain. So maybe there had been a great war in this valley. And now it is littered with bones. And God has Ezekiel walk, walk around among the bones. And then he asks him the question. Can these bones live? You can hear Ezekiel's sharp intake of breath. He feared this question. Can a people humiliated and destroyed be restored? Can a person decayed by sin experience life again? Is death so final an end that we have nothing more to look for than a few moments of happiness too often marred by trouble and the improbable hope that our memory will somehow endure through some work that we do? that will last beyond our time? Or can these bones live? To answer yes seems simply too fantastical. To answer no is unbearable. So Ezekiel throws himself upon the mercy and omniscience of God. And he says, O Lord God, Thou knowest. But God does not answer him directly. He does not give him a yes or a no. Instead, he gives Ezekiel a task. Go and prophesy over the bones and say, dry bones. Dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I will note that hearing the word of the Lord God or any other word is not something we generally find to be within the realm of possibility for dry bones. It's an awkward task, an odd thing to ask. But he says prophesy to the bones and say, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord God. I will put flesh and sinews and skin upon you and I will put breath in you and you will live and you will know that I am the Lord God. Ezekiel obeys and in this valley full of dead bones, he prophesies and says what the Lord God has told him to say say. and what follows is an incredible scene, but not quite a scene. It is described to us, not by sight, but by sound. There is a great rattling of bones, a rushing, a shaking, a rhythmic music, if you will, as bone joins to bone and becomes wrapped in flesh and sinews and skin. But now they are bodies without life. And God says to Ezekiel again, prophesy to the breath and say, breath, come from the four winds and breathe on these slain that they might live. Here there is a play on words, on the fact that Breath and wind and spirit are all the same word. And Ezekiel does again what he is told. He prophesies and breath enters into them and they stand a great army. Then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy yet again. These people are Israel, my covenant people. Who have lost hope. Prophesy to them. That I will open their graves. Returning them to the land. And they will know. That I am the Lord. When I restore them to their place. Put my spirit in them. And give them life. I have spoken. I will do it. Says the Lord. It is a rather difficult question God has asked, can these bones live? And he gives a fittingly dramatic answer to the question. Not just telling him, but showing him what he can do. Just before we began Lent, the Sunday before Lent, the lectionary gave us a look at the transfiguration an appropriate look as the transfiguration was said to happen 40 days before the crucifixion and giving the disciples a glimpse of the glory that they would need to carry with them through the difficult days ahead, giving us also a glimpse of God's glory before we enter into the wilderness, giving us hope through our journey in Lent. We are now also on the eve of the most intense part of this journey through Lent. Next week is Palm Sunday and we will begin our walk through the week of Christ's passion. Before we follow Jesus to the cross, we are in Ezekiel presented with the enormity of the question that is being asked next week. Can that which is long past languishing, long past the frantic struggle of desperation, that which is settled into a dry and dusty hopelessness, can it be touched by the breath of life? Is there hope? The immediate context of Ezekiel is the resurrection of the people of Israel. And their restoration in the land, but the church has not been wrong to extend this question: Can these bones live to other areas of death in our life? Such as the leprous death of our own souls in sin, those our souls and those we love, or the finality of the death of our bodies? Can those bones live? Or are we better to bury the question beneath a mountain of work or amusement or distraction? Ezekiel tells us we need not fear going into the hard questions of Holy Week. There is hope for the hopeless, for which we are to give God great thanks. I want to point out just a couple things about the hope we find in Ezekiel 37. First, our hope comes from God alone. We are told over and over in this passage, I God speaking, I will give breath. I will give life. You will know that I am the Lord. He ends it with, I have spoken. I will do it. The account of forming the bodies, a lifeless body, and then breathing upon them to give them life is a clear reference to Genesis 2, when God first forms man and breathes life into him. It is a reminder that God, life comes from God. God is life. And the one who first gave life in the beginning can recreate us and give life again. He is life and he shares that life abundantly. Nothing, no death is beyond his scope, his help. He can give life. And only he can do it. Only he is life. There are many things within the realm of fallen nature that we hope will give us hope. The incredible advances of technology and science seem to offer hope. Just give it enough time and science and technology will give us everything. It will not only rejuvenate our bodies, but also heal our, the inner struggles of our soul through medicine, through diet, through genetics, through implants... Just give it enough time. We can trust the science. This was the promise made by Francis Bacon 400 years ago. We are no longer closer, and perhaps we may even be farther away from being able to answer what we really mean by can these bones live. Science can give us many things, great and wonderful things, it cannot answer that question. Other things seem to give the breath of life to us. Perhaps our work, a relationship, children, money, hobbies. These things seem to animate our bones. But these things can only animate our bones by making them feebly dance like lifeless puppets upon a stage. They cannot truly give us life. The giving of life comes from the one who is life, God himself. And so we must come to him for life, and we must come to him his way. Israel in exile, and indeed all of mankind, reaches the point of being dry bones. ...because they did not believe as he had told them to believe... ...or do as he had told them to do. Life is there. And he says, come to me and receive it... ...in the way I tell you to come and receive it. Our hope comes from God alone. Secondly, and seemingly paradoxically... In restoring life to mankind, God works through mankind. Said that Ezekiel is not given an answer, he's given a task. In fact, he's given three tasks. God continually, progressively heals and restores life and gives life. But he does it by telling Ezekiel three times to go and prophesy. Prophesy to the bones. Prophesy to the the bodies that are lifeless, prophesy to the great army that now stands before you. God does not give us the ability to save ourselves or others, but he does choose to work through his creation, his people, to do his work on earth. Now that seems incredibly foolish, incredibly risky, wouldn't it be much safer if God just did it all himself supernaturally? Without deigning to entrust things to fallen, and broken human beings? Our psalm says, "If you were to count our iniquities, O Lord, who would stand?" But he does. But there is hope not just in the fact that he works through fallen human beings. In the fact that God, only God can save. And he works through humans. We have great, great hope and rest. Not just in Easter that's coming coming soon, but in Christmas. The fact that there was a human being that God did his work through who was not just a human being, but was fully God and fully man. And thus, from the very beginning, the church has said, this tension, this incarnation of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man is the only hope of salvation. God works through his creation, through humanity. He works through his son, who is human and God, and that brings salvation to us. And then, and then, as Christ came, and as we were celebrate, He died and was resurrected and returned to the Father. He sent us His Spirit, the Spirit we find in Ezekiel 7, animating, animating rejuvenating a people and making A great army. And Jesus' promise was, I will send my spirit who will lead you in all truth. And you will be my people. And you will make me known. And you will carry my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is incredible hope. And with this hope, we need not be afraid to approach the hard questions. This coming next two weeks before Easter, do not be afraid of them. Ask, ask God, where am I, Lord? Where am I in relationship to you? Where am I in relationship to my family, my fellow beings. Where am I in relationship to your creation, to life? Show me where I am in error. Show me where I am in a wrong place. We need not be afraid to ask, what am I doing here? What would you have me do here? Am I doing what you would have me to do? Nor need we be afraid to ask, can these bones live? Can life be brought to those dead appendages of my soul? Can I overcome the sin I find within me? Yes. Yes the one who is life can give you life. We need not be afraid to ask him, where is there death in me and how can you overcome it? Not seeking to put our trust and find our hope in our our bank account or in a relationship or in in our work. Those are all fine things, but they are not life-giving things. Can these bones live? Yes. Yes, they can. But they only live through God and through Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.